Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, the future of Condé Nast and of magazines in general. So not too long ago, the latest comings and goings at Condé Nast were the source of a lot of commentary and coverage in print and on the web, and there was kind of an obsession with what was going on at that company. Frankly, that's faded over the last few Mm -hmm. years. This week, it sort of came back thanks to a piece that Reeves Weidemann wrote in New York magazine that had a lot of that drama and backstabbing and glamour that we love about Condé Nast. But underpinning it was a serious question about what's going to happen to this company and what are these magazines that are part of this company going to look like? Reeves, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So, you know, you, you write I mean, this is a, it was a terrific piece, and it sort of, as I said, it had, it had both the kind of like the drama that doesn't seem to ever leave that place. Yeah. With, it, as much as they might want it to, but uh, it still remains. Yeah. One of the interesting points you make, and this is definitely my experience, I was an editor at Condé Nast Portfolio. I helped spend this $100 million that you write about. In the, <laughs> and, yeah. But I really identified with this notion that there was a time when just to walk through the door of the place was a sign that you had arrived and that you were Mm -hmm. in the world of magazines that you wanted to be. You did the same thing. You arrived in, what was it, 2009? 2009, yes. I think just as portfolio was closing, if I, I, I believe, but yeah, around the same time. And did you have that same, I mean, that was, you know, right in the kind of teeth of the recession and whatever, but was there still, even in 2009, did you have that sense of like, this is the sort of gold-plated thing? For me personally, I don't know that it was, it was necessarily this dream that I was aspiring to. I, you know, back, back in those days, I, I thought I was going to be a newspaper reporter. Um, and, and then through its, you know, various kind of turns of events, one of them being the uh, decline of the newspaper industry, I, I sort of found myself in, in magazines and, and as a fact checker at, at the New Yorker. So for me, I don't know if that, that necessarily was the case. That said, I felt very fortunate to be there. Um, and, and I think uh, among the people around me, not just at the New Yorker, but, but at other magazines, certainly at that point, um, even in kind of the depths of the recession, this was kind of the, the place you wanted to be. And you were there for six years. During that period, mm-hmm. was that when the move happened down to Freedom? Yeah, Time? I did. I spent, I think, five years in the um, in Four Times Square, and then was there for the first year of uh, the move to One World Trade. The piece that you wrote in the magazine opens with this hilarious line from Anna Winter looking out the window of the um, One World Trade Center, talking about the quarters. It's just dreadful. It's dreadful. She says, as she looks yeah. at this very corporate space. But let me just back up because um, yeah, sure. reading this piece, as as much as they're reckoning with what's happening to them, you still mm-hmm. get the impression that they are still living somewhere in the past, that there's still a kind of Devil Wears Prada land, even if they say there's not. Just the way they talk and the mm-hmm. way they th- is that is that fair? Was that your impression, too? I think there's a certain wish that we were still living in that era, but but I think the last few years in particular, which have, have brought a lot of change to the company, have kind of eliminated that notion and, and in a lot of ways have, have eliminated the people who yeah. sort of lived through that. And, and you know, one, one interesting thing for me just personally is I, I arriving in 2009, I just missed sort of 
the, glory, the true glory days. And, and Conde was able to kind of hold on to that, you know, to a few years longer than, than other media companies were after the recession. But it's, over sort of the, you know, the decade since the recession, the people who were there in the 90s and the 2000s were, were kind of slowly pushed out um, in some part because they had these exorbitant salaries. Yeah. Um, and if you're cutting costs, those are the people to go. In, and in other ways, because the company began to recognize that, that you needed to modernize and, and as good as someone might be at putting out a print magazine, they may not be the ideal person to figure out how that magazine translates to, to other mediums. Um, that, that process has happened very slowly, but I think in the past couple of years, you know, it, it, it would be willful blindness from anyone in the building to sort of think that, that things are as they were. That being said, I, I think there probably is sort of a still some kind of sense of, of specialness. I mean, you are in this, this giant uh, fancy skyscraper with a nice cafeteria um, on on the 35th floor. Um, so there is is sort of some lingering vestiges of that era, but I think sort of in terms of everyone's attitude, they're kind of more in the moment and trying to figure out what to do now. Although the way I saw it, the sort of central character mm-hmm. of the piece was Wintour herself, who still probably more than anybody holds on to this. And partly it seems like yeah. it kind of, business, it's it's mandated because if you're going to try to charge these high rates to advertise, you have to try to convince them that there is still something magical and glamorous and golden about this place. Yeah, I think advertisers for years, the, the feeling was, and, and this is as much the way that, that the business side of Condé Nast operated as, as much as the editorial side was, you are lucky to advertise, yeah. in a, to be able to advertise in a Condé Nast magazine and know we're not going to give you a discount. And and that worked for a long time. And, and Condé sort of held on to that notion in a way that some other magazine companies were, were starting to, to discount rates and whatnot. Um, so I, I think in, in a certain way, they have tried to hold hold on to that and and I think Anna is is obviously sort of the person who has, has been there for for over 30 years and is one of the few people if anyone uh, who, who's been there through all these periods so and, and she's the most powerful editorial person um, so it, it is true that that you know in insofar as everything kind of funnels down through her that you still do have this this connection um, that being said, you know, especially in recent years, she has certainly at least been willing to acknowledge that, that as she said to me, um, uh, print is the, the runway show of the Vogue business, which means it's, it's the centerpiece. But now we've got all these other things and, and other ways that we're, we're trying to find readers and, and to make money. Uh, on the other hand, you ask her about influencers on Instagram and whatever, mm-hmm. and there is this line which she had that just made me laugh out loud, which was, like she says, uh-huh. Vogue is the biggest influencer of them all. And uh-huh. I, I thought to myself, that can't possibly be true, right? <laughs> well, it's, uh, w- one thing I do want to say is for all of Anna Wintour's, the sort of caricature of her from the Devil Wears Prada as, as this kind of ice queen, she is very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so in some ways, you know, this is a, a clever line that you're delivering. But if, if you want to look at the numbers, um, you know, take a look at, at Vogue's Instagram following and take a look at any member of the Kardashian yeah. family, and it's not even close. Yeah. Um, and so... You know, I, I think there's a, there's an argument perhaps that, that Vogue, and, and this was something that, that people kind of brought up to me, that if you go back a, a decade or more, 
and before the era of influencers like Vogue and Anna Wintour and, and Graydon Carter and, and Cindy Levy and others in, in the kind of sort of upper echelon of Condé editors were the kind of original influencers in a way. So there, there's a truth to that, but it may be a little bit dated at this point. Right. So talk to me about the reporting of a story like this, because you were basically sure. trying to get information out of some of the masters of media manipulation and media sort of, you know, massaging mm-hmm. on the planet. Mm-hmm. What they do. What yeah, that's what they do every single day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. how do you how did you stack it up to other features that you've done in terms of the the need for hand holding or the difficulty in getting what you needed for the story? You know, in terms of reporting it, there were kind of two aspects of it was one one was um, through sort of a period of negotiation. We and, and from us saying, you know, we want to hear about what the state of this company is now and the future is from the people who are shaping it, which which in this case is, is Anna Wintour and it's Roger Lynch, the newly hired CEO as of earlier this year. And it's a handful of the new editors who have arrived from Radhika Jones at Vanity Fair and, and Will Welch at GQ. So we wanted to hear from them. And then, you know, the, the other half of the reporting is, is talking to the many, many people who, who work there and who have worked there throughout these, this period of change on the editorial side, on the business side, to try to sort of cobble together, you know, how has Conde gotten where it is and where it goes now. There's a cattiness um, uh-huh. to your reporting. I mean, to to the story, which I which is sort of yeah. delightful. Honestly, I mean, that's on, the, on, you, you were at the New York Observer at some point, right? Yes. So that's you know the 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 Observer and Page Six and Gawker yeah. lived on this stuff right, for yeah. for a long time. Where and I, I found this to be the case even today. It was not hard to find people who were willing to talk about their Condé Nast experience because it was so meaningful to so many people. Yeah. Um, they had strong feelings. There were obvious. There was obvious bitterness and grudges uh, that 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 still remained. And so you know that 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 cattiness still exists, and obviously some of it comes through because that's the reality of it. And then you know I guess part of our job is figuring out what. Yeah petty grudges and what's, uh, you know, what's actually meaningful. Not yeah. that the, uh, the decline of the snack situation, which we detail in at great length, is, yeah. is that important, but uh, you do have to have a little bit of fun. Yeah. They're, they're trying to, through consolidation and through innovation and through some sponsored content the kind of stuff, mm-hmm. sort of come up with ways to support these brands that aren't dependent on advertising and also aren't dependent on as wide an audience as they once had. I mean, there was, I thought your, the interview you had with Will Welch, inter- yeah. interesting because he was basically saying that he thinks the power isn't more in the kind of specialization of an audience. Mm-hmm. Like, like he thinks mm-hmm. that the power they have is if they can find people who are really passionate about fashion rather than trying to appeal to the masses who want to be sort of like, aim up and like try to earn their way mm-hmm. into becoming GQ people. Those are different brands. That's a different kind of approach. But do you think that that sort of a take is similar at the other magazines too? I mean, is that, is that sort of where Vanity Fair thinks it, it should go as well? I think there is a sense that being this magazine that can speak to everyone, whether it's in GQ's case, um, all American men, 
or Glamour's case, you know, all the great sort of, you know, we're not Vogue, we're not the elite magazine, we're talking to all American women. Um, I, I think there's a sense that you can't do that anymore. And that, 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 you know, that's just not a way to, to appeal to consumers, given that all, all the sort of specialized options that, that they have. So I think it is something that all of the different brands are trying to sort of figure out exactly, you know, what their sort of area is. As, as a business proposition, there's a certain way in which it makes sense. And certainly the business side of Condé Nast has, has bought into the vision for this new GQ. It does feel like a, you know, slightly dangerous slope. I heard from lots of people who, and this, you know, goes for myself to some degree. You know, I, I'm not someone who views the world through style, as Will sort of says his, his ideal reader is. And, and I'm, I'm a longtime reader of GQ and, and the new version of the magazine. I see some things that are for me and a lot that isn't necessarily. So will they lose readers? Probably. The, the bet is that um, you can find other ways to make money from them. That if you appeal to the person who just loves the way you look at the world, then they won't just subscribe to the magazine. They'll buy, in GQ's case, they'll buy this box that they sell quarterly for 50 bucks that has products in it. And they'll buy a chair from the line of furniture that they have at CB2 and, and all of that. So th- that's the proposition. It seems to have some hold some weight at, at Condé, but I think it's sort of early to say whether it will actually work. So you asked them the sort of elephant in the room question, which everybody in media talks about, which is, you know, is this thing mm-hmm. going to be sold? Are the new houses mm-hmm. going to hang on? Are the magazines going to be sort of piecemealed out? In fact, there was, I thought, great reporting in, in your piece about Vanity Fair and how Graydon Carter mm-hmm. talked to them about maybe even buying the magazine himself before he started his mm-hmm. e- email thing. Yeah. They, they told you flat out, none of that is happening. It's not for sale. You know, they're not going to piecemeal it out, whatever. Um, I take it you were right. you were convinced of their response? They have always said that. Um, and, and as one executive who worked pretty closely with the new houses told me, Stephen, in particular, who runs Advanced Publications, which, which owns Condé Nast, has always said it's not for sale. That said, uh, one day you do sell the company, um, and and you know you can look at at the company I work for, New York Media, which we were publicly for sale, and and then we weren't, and 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 then we were sold to to Vox Media. So uh, you know it's sort of to say I, I, I take him at his word. Uh, you know my sense of of Graydon Carter's attempt to buy the Vanity Fair was that it was you know pretty quickly dismissed. Um, I don't think they're eager to sell these magazines. At the same time, they have a lot of other business interests now, and this is the one that doesn't make that much money anymore. And and being in the magazine business isn't as fun as it was a decade or two ago. So, you know, I, I imagine that, that they will start to entertain offers, and especially that some of the kind of the lower-tier magazines, the, the not-quite-as-prestigious ones, will have to sort of carry their weight and, and prove that they're worth it, that it's, it's not something that, that Condé is just going to keep around because they can. Yeah. I mean, reading through your piece, I was reminded, you know, when I was there about how mm-hmm. Cy Newhouse pretty much every day was having lunch in the cafeteria. Yeah. Sometimes with I editors, remember that. Sometimes with editors, sometimes with random people, sometimes by himself. Mm-hmm. But he clearly had great passion and, and it really was in his DNA. I had a hard time in your piece finding somebody 
on the Newhouse side that had that level of passion, at least coming across in the piece. I mean, I was like looking for like who who's mm-hmm. going to pick up that, who's going to take that baton, and it was very unclear to me that anybody had the same sort of view of the business. I, th- I think that's right. And, and you know, the two main uh, sort of figures in the Newhouse family as it relates to Condé Nast are, are Stephen, who, who frankly just has sort of a broader brief. He's, he's in charge of, of a range of businesses from the, the newspapers that the family owns to some of the technology companies that they run. So he's just sort of a level removed. There were people who worked at the magazines who said they, you know, interacted with him and, and think highly of him and, and, uh, and all of that. But there, there doesn't seem to be the same connection. The other big person in the family is Jonathan Newhouse, who has spent the last few decades in London running the international side of Condé Nast, which has been a wholly separate company. There is almost no interaction between them. And that is something that, that Condé Nast has spent the last year uh, or more trying to change and that's a that's a big part of how they see the future and jonathan i think you know has a similar relationship i think he's more involved on the international side and it remains to be seen he's now chairman of the board if he will have that kind of hands-on role but as stephen told me this is now a company that they want to be run by the ceo who's an outsider roger lynch who came from the tech world and that they don't expect in the same way that Cy was very involved for any members of the family to be as involved in that way Right. Finally, sort of talking about kind of rebuilding this thing into some version mm-hmm. of what it was in its heyday. Is is that mm-hmm. even the right frame for this? I mean, mm-hmm. do, is that really even possible, do you think? Probably not, uh, would be my sort of sad take on it. You know, I, I think there's, there's a version of Condé Nast that survives and thrives. And in an interesting way, um, they have made a big investment in video, um, relatively successfully, at least in terms of, of gaining audience, particularly on YouTube with, with each of their brands, as they now call them, no longer magazines, um, having kind of a, uh, getting a big following. Bon Appetit is, is a great example where, I, you know, guaranteed more people know Bon Appetit from the test kitchen videos where the chefs have become kind of these YouTube stars and actually subscribe to the magazine. So yeah. is, is there a way in which they can kind of create a, a sort of video version of Condé Nast that has all these different brands kind of doing different things? They can still, they do still have this pull of being able to get celebrities to, you know, now not only come appear on the cover, but to, to do that and film a video for GQ. That, that's certainly where they place their bet. Uh, so, you know, I can't imagine sort of a, a magazine empire rising again, but if, it, if something like that happens, the video side is kind of where they've, they've placed their bet in the future. Yeah. Reeves, it was a great piece. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Um, you can read Reeves Weidemann's piece on Condé Nast in New York Magazine, and you can check out the non-Reeves Weidemann pieces about media in at CGR.org, at our website, at our email, The Media Today, which you can subscribe to through CJR, and on our social media. Thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>